0: He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a
1: servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Today's reading is from Philippians chapter three verses 1 to 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the, f- the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. yes to know the power of his his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead paul has spent the first two chapters of philippians warming up
0: and now in chapter 3 he is firing on all cylinders or should i say just firing because he begins by taking aim at three different groups of people, warning the church at Philippi to look out. Look out, he says, for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those flesh mutilators. In each of these three cases, Paul's taking aim at people within the church who have created different criteria about who's in and who's out in the family of God. Who are the true believers and the righteous ones and who doesn't make the grade? Firstly, Paul says, look out for the dogs. Now, hold on a minute. Paul isn't a cat person hating on your beloved pooch. He is contemptuously hurling back at his listeners a reference to Gentiles. Dogs in the first century weren't pampered, domesticated pets like we have today. They were pests running wild, spreading disease. They were a byword for everything that should be avoided. Jews called Gentiles dogs because like dogs, Gentiles were unclean creatures with whom Jewish people should not associate if they could possibly help it. So Paul isn't condoning calling Gentiles dogs, he's having a go, a go at those Jewish followers of Jesus who denigrate Gentile brothers and sisters because of their ancestry, which puts them outside of the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, and therefore outside the lineage of God's chosen people. It would kind of be like me saying to you, well, as we all know, Baptists have always been the true believers. And if your parents and your grandparents weren't Baptists, well, I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to drink the international roast at morning tea while the rest of us sip our lattes. You're going to have to sit in the second-class seats in church, which ironically for Baptists aren't up the back but are down the front where, believe me, the preacher can see you playing Candy Crush or falling asleep. Look out for those dogs, Paul says, aiming not at the so-called dogs themselves but at the ones doing the nasty name-calling. Look out, he says, for the dogs and look out for the evildoers. The evildoers... This is a reference to people who pride themselves on keeping the law. They're the ones who believe that their good works, their keeping of the law makes them superior and everyone else inferior. Paul says, look out for these people. Their reliance on their good works is actually actually dangerous because it's ultimately a form of self-reliance that renders God unnecessary. And this isn't some benign distortion of the gospel of grace by faith in Christ. This is a full-throated denial of the heart of the gospel. And what these people are doing actually hurts people because the consequences of elevating the works-based righteousness of humans and pushing the gospel of God's grace out of the picture is the flourishing of evil. Again, Paul highlights the irony that the ones going around pointing their fingers and accusing others of evil are the very ones you need to watch out for because it's their behavior that's contributing to the flourishing of evil itself. Look out, he says, look out for those dogs, look out for those evildoers, and finally, look out for those flesh mutilators. Flesh mutilators is a reference to circumcision. For Jews, circumcision was established as a symbol of the covenant relationship between the people of Israel and God. But in Paul's day, some people had lost sight of its symbolic nature and had started seeing it as a necessary badge that made you acceptable before God. This was a live issue for Paul. Because there are a bunch of followers of Jesus who were going around insisting that Gentile men of all ages needed to be physically circumcised if they were going to be spiritually right with God. Much to the other men's relief, Paul says physical circumcision isn't a spiritual requirement. And that the people who think it is are nothing but flesh mutilators who have lost sight of the true meaning of circumcision. Look out, he says, for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers and look out for those flesh mutilators. Thankfully, Paul isn't just throwing around shade. He's also offering us some good news. Because Paul's corrective to all of this is to say three things to us, summarised in verse 3, that we are the circumcision who worship in spirit and we boast in Jesus Christ. That we, the church of Jesus Christ, has been established as the symbol and the sign of the covenant, not circumcision. And that it's the spirit of God at work within us that's transforming us, not the law. So we don't boast in our family background or our own goodness or our accomplishments. We boast in Christ, who he is and what he has done. And just in case we haven't got the message yet, Paul lays out his own CV. He sets out objectively using the three criteria the people he's just warned us about want to use to argue that, well, if these are the criteria that matter, my goodness, he comes up to scratch better than anyone else. Paul says, if you want to talk about family background, I am a purebred, a Hebrew born of the Hebrews, card-carrying member of the tribe of Benjamin. If you wanna talk about following the rules, I love the rules. I love the rules so much, I became a professional rule maker, a Pharisee. And I was so zealous about policing the rules that I physically persecuted people if they didn't follow them. And look, if you wanna throw some shade at my own personal rule following, I've got one word for you, blameless. You wanna talk about the right religious markers, I wasn't just circumcised. I was circumcised on the right day and I've got the embarrassing photos to prove it. After that little speech, I imagine Paul drops the mics and and exits stage left. Now, I don't know what you're thinking, but at this point, I'm kind of starting to feel my inner Pentecostal get excited. I mean, I want to say, you preach it, Brother Paul. You tell those snobby, self-righteous legalists a thing or two. I mean, don't you love it when Scripture points the finger at all those smug, judgy people that drive you completely nuts? And don't you love it when you can find a Bible passage that calls out that person you met at church who made you feel less than because you grew up in the wrong church tradition or worse, you didn't grow up in one at all? And that person who made you feel kind of a little bit shameful when your behaviour didn't reach some Christian gold standard. But just when I feel like Paul and I are getting on the same page, frankly, Paul goes and wrecks the whole thing. Because beginning in verse 7, he says, whatever I've gained, whatever I've achieved whatever honour or prestige, whatever is on the credit side of the ledger of my life, whatever success criteria you want to apply, it's not worth having. And I regard it as loss. My beautiful family, my great job, my amazing friends, the career I've built, the house I own, the car I drive, the things I've learnt, the Bible studies I've done, the prayers I've prayed, the people I've helped, The good I've done, the difference I've made, it's all loss, Paul says. Everything is loss when compared to Christ. See, Paul isn't just saying look out for the dogs and the evildoers and the the flesh mutilators because they've got the wrong criteria. Paul is saying it doesn't matter what your criteria is. It doesn't matter what you put in the credit side of the ledger If it's anything other than the surpassing value of knowing Christ, you've lost the plot. But that doesn't stop us from trying to do it, does it? We try and fill ourselves up with so many things. We hope that if we pray like this or believe like that, that if we're just able to manifest this particular spiritual gift, and ensure that we only sing these songs but never those, that if we sign these petitions and endorse those letters to these politicians, if we could just use our power and our money and our good taste and our learning to benefit others, that if we could just live up to the standards of personal piety and holiness that our particular corner of the church emphasises, that all of these things would be credited to us as check marks in the column of faith. And if we could just put enough check marks in the column of faith, if we could fill ourselves and our lives up with enough good things, surely, surely that would be good enough. But the problem for us, a major stumbling block for many of us, is that Jesus invites us to a spirituality of emptying ourselves. Remember those words from the Christ poem that we've been singing from Philippians chapter 2? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us repeatedly about the blessing of emptying ourselves. Blessed are the meek the ones who can give up their need for control. Blessed are the merciful, the ones that can give up the need for always being right. Blessed are the pure in heart, the ones who are not bound by cynicism and contempt. And blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who can set aside resentment and empty themselves of the need for revenge. And if that doesn't do it for you, consider this. The whole of the Christian faith is grounded in agape, selfless love. Jesus says there is no greater love than those who lay down their life for another. When the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray, he teaches them to pray this. God, your kingdom come, your will be done. But time and time again, we turn Christianity into just another wish-fulfillment strategy because we're so driven by our fear, fear of living a meaningless life, fear of our own mortality, our fear that we'll have to face who we actually are, that there are some things we can't seem to stop doing and others we can't seem to start. We are driven in so many ways to make something of ourselves, to make our lives count, that we'll stay at the office until all hours. We'll use our children to prop up our self-esteem. We'll twist the truth. We'll invest heavily in curating our lives in person and online. We'll use other people and we'll blame them when they get it wrong including the ones we're supposed to love the most. Gosh, some of us are even willing to stomach religion. We're happy filling ourselves up with dogma and self-righteousness, with a spirituality inspired by self-esteem, with the kind of faith that cherry-picks particular parts of the Bible and stitches them together in a comforting soft quilt that we get to wrap around ourselves as we rock back and forth, praying that God will deliver us exactly the kind of life we want. And Paul rudely shakes us and says, your accounting methods will never add up. All the ways in which you're trying to self-soothe and prop up your self-esteem and deny your death are ultimately self-defeating. Because you will never be satisfied, no matter how much money, sex, power, or religion you throw at the problem. Paul says there is only one thing that can help, and that is being found in Christ. It's such a small little phrase, isn't it? In Christ. I wonder what it really means. Like you. I'm on a journey of working that out. But what I've come to realise so far is that it means that instead of some heroic life you make happen, you choose to enfold your life into a life that is better than any you could possibly imagine for yourself. It means coming to understand reality, seeing the world in a particular way through the eyes of Jesus, that we are all one human family, that the game of competition and grabbing all that we can for ourselves is incredibly short-sighted and just hurts us, that it's not our sin and our brokenness that separates us from one another. Our sin and brokenness is what we have in common, that love is the greatest power in the universe and every choice we make in the opposite direction is a move towards death. It means that instead of relying on our own ability to get it together, the only hope we have is what Jesus has done in laying down his life for us. And it means forgetting all the things we've heard in church that make us think that Christianity is about acquiring some right set of beliefs and recognising that it's about opening ourselves up to a relationship with the living word of God, Jesus Christ himself. And this relationship, this is the means through which we discover that God has so much more for us than being good or getting it right or succeeding. This is a relationship where through experiencing the grace of Jesus, we come to see that it's so much better to be kind than it is to be right, that we have more to lose in harbouring resentment and taking revenge than extending forgiveness. A relationship in which we experience, perhaps for the first time, a love that is so passionate, so persistent and unwavering, so deeply invested in us and this world that it is willing to sacrifice itself for us so that we might have life and life to the full in this age and the one to come. What you believe, friends, about Jesus is no substitute for the life of his spirit living inside of you. What you believe about Jesus is no substitute for allowing your life to be hidden in Christ. But in order to make room for Jesus' spirit, You have to empty yourself of all that stuff you've been clinging to because, believe me, it's choking the life out of you. And this emptying ourselves so that Jesus' spirit might fill us isn't just something that we do once. This is something we do over and over again, something that we keep doing. Paul says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or or I've already reached this goal, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. There is no arrival, but we keep going, emptying ourselves and allowing the spirit of Christ to fill us so we might become imitators of Christ. So that bit by bit, We start to resemble Jesus, and the gap between who we are and who Jesus is begins to close, and it closes to the point that we are found in Christ. Look out, Paul says. Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for the flesh mutilators. Look out for anything and anyone that invites you to focus on anything other than the surpassing value of knowing Christ and being found in him. Amen.